Hi, everyone. Today is February 9th, 2018. Welcome to a special episode of Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neuroscience podcast. I'm your host, Selma Qureshi. Um, so we've just come off our 2018 10th anniversary symposium, which was titled Astrocytes and Synaptic Control. And I'm here with the panel having the panel discussion. And I'm just going to let them go around the room and, and introduce themselves. Good afternoon. I'm Phil Hayden. I'm the Annetta and Gustav Grissard Professor and Chair of Neuroscience at Tufts University School of Medicine uh, in Boston. I'm Carlos Palladini, Professor Biology Department at University of Texas San Antonio and the Neurosciences Institute. I'm Alfonso Araque. I'm a professor at the Department of Neuroscience at the University of Minnesota. What? And, okay, <laughs> I was not a participant, but I'm here uh, um, joining along for the podcast, uh, Matt Wanett at UTSA. And I'm Jim Leclerc from UT Health, uh, San Antonio. I'm a professor in cell systems and anatomy. And I'm Eric Herzog from Washington University's Department of Biology. I'm Charlie Wilson, director of the UTSA Neurosciences Institute. Okay, thank you. So Matt pointed out that not everyone uh, was a speaker in our symposium. Phil, Eric, Alfonso, and Carlos, actually. You can visit our website to, to have a look at who was actually on the panel. But we all were going to have a discussion. Hangers on. Yeah, these are just some interlopers. <laughs> I wonder where we picked them up along the way. Okay, so today we've heard about how um, neuronal signals are shaped, amplified, selected, and even scheduled. Uh, by local astrocyte networks, and, and even to a degree that's detectable and even defining in behaviors as varied as sleep-wake rhythms, fear conditioning, and even motivated behavior. So, Phil and Alfonso, uh, your conceptual framework and naming of the tripartite synapse kind of kickstarted this all a little bit in the 1990s. So, can you both say something about the scope of how you imagined that neurons and glia communicated at that time in the 90s and, and how that sort of expanded and evolved if, in, since? Big question. <laughs> well, in the 1990s, it was all a dream. It was, we had curious observations that couldn't be explained based on how we thought the nervous system worked. And Alfonso and I were working together and starting to realize that Astrocytes were real partners with neurons, listening to neurons and talking back. And we had many times sitting around a table like we are today discussing what this might mean. And I think we, and Alfonso will add, I'm sure, um, just came up with a concept that astrocytes could just locally talk to neurons, but even potentially when signals propagate through astrocytes could have very distant effects. And in my mind at the time, I speculated that this might do something for behavior. It was my wildest dreams that it actually would be involved in behavior, but today, clearly, we've seen that behavior is being modulated by astrocytes. So, Alfonso. Yeah, it's, uh, I remember that time it was very exciting because everything was new and it was uh, challenging, and I remember to, to struggle to, to convince first ourselves and then later of the reviewers and uh, and very exciting, very, and yes, I think I would not imagine the actual situation, the current situation of the field on the great uh, uh, knowledge that we have acquired in the last years about the important role of these cells in the nervous system. I said today in, the, in this uh, 
symposium whether we need to revisit the the energy physiology of the last uh, 50 years because we need to to rethink I, that's my feeling uh, the brain how the brain works because we need to think that it's also not only neurons but also the astrocytes and all other glial cells but uh, just advocating for astrocytes i think that's we need to rethink the way we think about about that and i think there have been a lot of uh, of evidence provided by many groups in many different labs in the world that just providing this evidence that indeed the the, the, the animal behavior and the, the, the way that the, the brain works is through this uh, coordinated activity of neurons and astrocytes and not only neurons. I think it's a great, great revolution. So one thing that uh, I think you said, especially both of you, was that neurons are or astrocytes are not neurons. See, I started with neurons, because we all start with neurons with everything. But um, yet, you know, this is how we are framed to think about everything. We don't even know the parts list yes, yet of what we're talking about and discussing um, astrocytes and how they actually communicate with neurons. So can you say something about how big that question is and how far we are into understanding that parts list to be able to work with it? Well, we don't, I mean, we agree that tasks are not neurons. They are different cells. Uh, and they probably work in a different time scale and with different mechanisms of signaling, the coding, and everything is maybe different. Uh, and sometimes in my, in, in my talks, I also like to, to make this, this idea is that the neurons, we take how the science has been developed, especially in neuroscience, we take something which is uh, very specific as a general terms. Let me explain this. We take the neurons that make action potentials to, that are conducted at a very fast speed as the rule of the functioning of the brain. Or we take the synapses where there's a fast synaptic transmission uh, with a very specialized structure in, in the brain to transmit very fast and relatively reliably form the, the synapse. But these are monsters of the nature. The action potential and the fast synaptic transmission, that's a very specialist, a highly, a high specialization of the neurons. That's not all the cells in the body are communicating with each other. Neurons have chosen a very specialized manner. So astrocytes do not have this uh, specialized manner to communicate. They don't have action potentials. They don't have this fast synaptic transmission, the structure and function, but they communicate. And so the point is that they are not neurons, so they are handling information. They are handling information in a different manner, and they are interacting with, the ne with neurons in a different manner as well uh, than neurons itself. That, that's, that's my view. Uh, so the parts list is an interesting question. <clears throat> I think we have a jigsaw puzzle where normally you take a puzzle and you say, oh, a thousand pieces. Okay, I can handle that. But we have a jigsaw puzzle of an, an un, absolutely unknown number of pieces. And we're starting to put together little pieces of the sky. There's a little piece of the house. And it might be a thousand pieces, a million pieces, a billion pieces, which makes it difficult to project where this has the potential to go. But I think one framework to consider almost like the opposite side of that jigsaw are diseases of the brain. 
in that diseases of the brain are really going to help define some of the borders of that jigsaw. So we're now realizing that in many brain disorders, not only are neurons not working correctly, but there are real changes in the way glial cells are functioning. And we're going to find out some of the parts list by actually now studying the glial cells in Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, stroke, uh, schizophrenia. And by seeing the pieces that are missing, we'll understand these new elements of the jigsaw, which is ultimately the full part list. And we've got to a point, I think, today, which is very different than in 1990. We now have tools that we can actually interrogate brain disorders concerning uh, glial cells that from coming in from the adult this diseased brain will actually allow us to start backfilling to understand the parts and how the astrocyte works. So most of these new tools had to do with optical methods because, um, because the glia were electrically uh, not speaking up. They weren't loud enough right. in their electrical signals. And the, and the development of optical methods has revolutionized yeah. the study of glia. And there were two or three really cool optical methods that you guys brought up. One was the luciferase assay that I thought was really uh, novel. Maybe, I, maybe it's just me, but I didn't know about that one. And, uh, and several others. So do you think that we can, that, that the, the, uh, the missing pieces of the, of, of the pathways, of the signaling pathways in the cells that are responsible for all of this communication will all get filled in using special optical methods to interrogate each one of these steps? Is that what we have to do? I, I think you're right that um, tool development in terms of being able to watch physiological events in real time and uh, non-invasively has helped propel us. Um, so you mentioned how we can watch gene expression in real time. We're able now to look at extracellular signaling, things like glutamate, um, ATP. We talked about, um, today we learned about ways to measure D-serine release from, uh, from astrocytes. I think those are, those are really um, powerful ways for us to make observations. But the other tool that I think is going to help put the puzzle together is the ability to now target astrocytes in a more specific and targeted way. So previously, um, we had a couple of genes that were relatively enriched in astrocytes, and we could use those as ways to drive expression in astrocytes and sometimes the heart also or some other tissue. Now with uh, gene delivery technologies like viruses, um, we can target astrocytes in tiny regions in the brain um, and be confident that we're really specifically activating or, or um, uh, manipulating astrocytes. So one of the things about astrocytes that was emphasized by everybody today is the way they tile the tissue rather than having their, their domains overlap. Uh, but on the other hand, there's this theme that there's more than one kind of astrocyte. Mm -hmm. So if we imagine a brain structure that has three kinds of astrocytes, are there three parallel, complete tilings? Or are these tiles of different colors that are all working together to make a single tiling of the tissue. Do we have an idea about that? No, I don't think we have any idea about that. I mean, the, we, the, the idea of the astrocyte heterogeneity is kind of relatively novel, and we, we need that. I mean, there are some hints there that don't, not all the astrocytes 
are identical, not even in the same brain region and not even in different regions. But we still need to do a lot of, a lot of work on that to, to define exactly what are these properties of the different astrocytes. And, and, and as, I, as I Phil said, I think it's, it's created. Maybe when we start to understand what is wrong with some, some of these properties, we will allow us to identify the specific prop, the specific properties of this some astrocytes. So but right now, it's something like we don't know that. So, much. In, so there are sort of two ends that are sort of difficult to work with there. So on the one hand, we keep discussing astrocytes as a unitary thing because we've just discovered that these are an important category of synaptic element. But then there's the heterogeneity, right? So. What are the anchoring features that we can sort of take from one part of the brain to the other in terms of understanding, you know, for example, uh, you know, the, uh, the metabolic coupling? Is that something that we can imagine is that being a generic principle of all astrocytes or the, the, the transport, the, the GLT-1? I mean, where, where do we, what assumptions can we make? I don't think we can make any assumptions at all about the metabolic coupling. I mean, that's been something, uh, Phil entered some interesting work today about the lactic shuttle, which was sort of classic physiology to the point where when you talked about any kind of glucose metabolism in an astrocyte, they didn't even draw mitochondria, you know, and they, I mean, most textbooks didn't have mitochondria in astrocytes. And I still wonder whether or not, and I'm interested in your opinion here, if lactate in, if it's really only, uh, you sort of implied today that in some of your, one of your talks that at lactate was actually very critical for actually, you know, the activity, you know, um, uh, of the neuron that was being made by the astrocyte, brought into the cytosol or into the extracellular space and then taken up into the neuron. But you could equally wonder when you add lactate to the bath whether or not that lactate was taken up by the astrocyte and actually then brought into the actual the astrocyte mitochondria. So, so I'm really curious. Do, do you really think it's only unidirectional here that the lactate's being used only by the neuron? Do you think the astrocyte can take advantage of the lactate? We don't know whether the astrocytes making use of the lactate. However, it's clear there are mitochondria in astrocytes yeah. as opposed to the earlier textbook view that they're not present. So. Without doubt, there are going to be lactate utilization there. However, it is clear that lactate from the astrocyte is being shuttled to the neuron in the particular brain region I was discussing. And to sort of make that clear is we made a brain-wide manipulation. And by recording EEGs and EMGs, found a very brain region-specific change, which is just in the lateral hypothalamus. And where we then showed that in that region, the astrocyte shuttling lactate to the neuron is critical. How critical in other brain regions? Uh, it remains to be determined. I'm sure it's going on. But how critical? We didn't see other major signs in the EEG where we might normally see changes in theta rhythms and other uh, you know, frequencies of activity in different brain regions. So it could be a very local effect. Taking this to another level, there's something I didn't really go into when I spoke earlier, but <clears throat> the data actually say within the lateral hypothalamus, there has to be heterogeneity amongst the astrocytes. Because if every astrocyte were to convert glucose to lactate and then shuttle it to a neuron, getting rid of the connecting communication channels between astrocytes would have no effect. What that in, implies is that an astrocyte is generating lactate, 
which then has to go through the connecting gap junctions to other astrocytes, which in turn feed the neurons. So that says there's cells that synthesize lactate and deliver to other astrocytes, which in turn deliver. So even within that small brain region, there has to be heterogeneity. So I'm interested in, in Salma's question is basically, and, and Alfonso saying, how can we rethink neurophysiology if, you know, when we think about neurons, of course there's a lot of heterogeneity in neurons, but essentially neurons have action potentials and they release some chemical and then mm -hmm. another neuron detects that, right? So that generically we could say mm -hmm. that. Is there something that we could say about, I mean, I know astrocytes are also going to have a large degree of heterogeneity, but is there some common currency among astrocytes so that we can then take that and start rethinking about neurophysiology as a fundamental um, way to think about or, or a way to start talking about how communication among neurons is also um, communication among astrocytes with neurons. Uh, uh, rather than, you know, always getting caught in the weeds of, you know, these astrocytes do this and these yeah. astrocytes do that. Right. Is there some fundamental principle that we can at least apply I think there and some, start from there? Some very simple fundamental principles, but I don't think it's going to help. Okay. <laughs> and those principles are astrocytes respond to neurotransmitters released at synapses. Right. I think that is, we know that. Number two, astrocytes have transporters that take up chemical transmitters. Absolutely clear. Astrocytes have ion channels that help clear potassium without question. Astrocytes convert glutamate to glutamine without question. As you start trying to go further down the list, there become questions. But they, and these are all astrocytes <coughs> that you just listed? Pretty much all Pretty astrocytes. Much. As yeah. far as I mean, there tell. are some brain regions where glutamate's not a major transmitter, yeah. but they have transported. But how do we approach the problem? We're limited by the power of our brains, and we have to do hypothesis-based science. And so we have these incredible techniques where we do this transcriptional profiling and so on, and we get, there's 20,000 genes, and we look at this list, and we say, oh, that's my favorite gene. I, I've now got the rationale to study it, which is totally the wrong strategy. If we want to see all the pieces in the jigsaw puzzle, we now need to do a really broad, I mean, just shotgun approach, CRISPR, astrocyte-specific, just hit every gene, and do a sophisticated behavioral output analysis, and just go through all 20,000, have the sophisticated output, then with that, we would be able to come there and start understanding pathways and what these cells do. So, I was, but I was wondering, I mean, everybody here, and I mean, you're, the figure that you showed at the end where what is the role of astrocytes, it's sort of always playing the support role mm -hmm. relative to neurons. And I'm just wondering if maybe we're thinking about it wrong. I mean, uh, Eric, towards the end, you you highlighted the fact that they express a diversity mm -hmm. of receptors. And we're ignoring the fact that, you know, maybe there's some computational aspects that might be actually integrated within the astrocytes. And, you know, everybody's still sort of taking this idea that astrocytes are sort of supporting this. And why would they express all of these sort of receptors? I mean, are they just sniffing what's being left over? I mean, in some ways, it doesn't seem like that's an efficient strategy. And perhaps our astrocytes actively sensing, you know, as opposed to just sort of playing a support role, you know, in your, uh, you know, pit crew helping out the, uh, you know, the, um, the F1 formula driver, you know, are they actually playing more an integrated role in this process, I guess? Yeah. 
One of the, 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 the very early uh, slide you showed, the movie that you showed from Stephen Smith and Cornelio Bell's lab, yeah. that was the one that got me going too, really excited about astrocytes, and I saw probably the same seminar at one point. Yeah. We had the brain slices, and we loaded up the calcium Indian uh, uh, indicator dye. And I remember when it flashed, the, the neuronal calcium activity was over within a second or two. And then you, it was this pause, you know, all of a sudden then the whole thing went crazy for minutes of astrocytes. So the integration time is totally different yeah. for, for the astrocytes. It's a time scale difference too, I think, you know, where it does have time to integrate. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really exciting. Yeah. I, I really like that. So provocative question, maybe I'll give a provocative answer. <laughs> That's why we're here. <laughs> That's provocative speculation. So going back to Stephen Smith in this is so the to give the frame of reference in 1990, Stephen Smith's lab published a paper showing rather than measuring the electrical activity of astrocytes, he measured calcium activity of astrocytes and that they respond to neurotransmitter. And at that time, Steve speculated. I'll assign it to Steve. <laughs> he speculated that in the brain, why couldn't the memory actually be held within the astrocyte? given the capability to receive those signals. And, it, and you know, you move on this and say, well, if these signals can actually now change gene expression, protein synthesis, and structure, there's no a priori, there's no reason why the, the memory should be in a neuron as opposed to the astrocyte. Um, so then that starts making you think, well, let's think about instruction as opposed to support. So one of these, you know, themes we had about sleep, wake, circadian rhythms, is we know that with wakefulness, co uh, acetylcholine stimulates the astrocytes. They release adenosine, and we know this causes changes to neuron. I'll say instructs changes in neuronal receptors and circuits that promote the switch of a neuronal circuit into a sleep state. And so there you can see the astrocyte is actually you know promoting that switch. Um, so I like to think if you think of different circuits, different behaviors we have, there are certain behaviors that are not permissive of other behaviors. For example, when we're asleep, there are certain, you know, it's difficult to eat. Um, when you're eating, you don't want to fall asleep unless you've been flying too much. Uh, <laughs> and I think there's the potential that the astrocytes are actually changing the arousal state of different circuits. The neuron itself is, has the circuitry to allow the fast firing and so on. But whether that circuit can be active or inactive could well be dictated by the modulatory state from the astrocyte, based on the sleep information. No, it's just do what the astrocytes tell them to do. I'm sorry? No, it's just do what the astrocytes tell them to do. I just tell them, the you might say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. One of the compelling things from looking at astrocytes and cultures is how motile they are. They don't sit still. Is that a general feature too? And if, since we're talking about dogmas here, I mean, how much motility is there in the CNS in terms of astrocytes? How anchored are these things? How long do they live? How easily are they repl I mean, like, what, these are sort of questions that I don't understand if, if everyone has a handle on. I certainly don't. Yeah. If you look at the, at the, at the Brady Beaver, uh, one of the things that is most amazing for me is how alive it is. Things are moving. Yeah. The the dritic spines, the dritic process. This is like a like a Manhattan in yeah. is fully of, of of activity and movement 
so the idea of, uh, that we have probably from the anatomist in the 19th century about the brain fixed in some position and we will do the immunos, that's not the real thing. When you put now a mouse or a rat behind the microscope with these two photon microscopy, things are moving a lot. It's very alive. Uh, which usually don't, we don't consider that they're moving and relatively fast. Mm -hmm. And microglia and everything is, is, things are not fixed at all. But structure has been such an important idea in informing studies of function, right? Where is that field in, in terms of astrocytes? Is there, is there some fine structure that we need to understand or know about? Well, a fine structure of astrocytes is constantly changing at an incredible speed. <laughs> and much more rapidly than dendritic spines. Uh, we don't understand what, why it's occurring. Uh, you know, it could be this constant sampling to actually sniff whether something's occurring that it now wants to stabilize. You know, uh, one of the things astrocytes do that we didn't discuss today is they can actually stimulate synapses to form between neurons. And one might envision that there's this constant extension and retraction of the processes, sampling the state of a region of a potential pre and past neuron to then make the decision well that whether they will enable a synapse to form, which is a fascinating concept. And that may also contribute to how, how is it you actually form a memory. Uh, if you say the memory is the formation of a new synapse, which of course is the opposite of what I speculated just now, it may be the astrocyte has come in and said, yes, you may form the synapse. So, so it might be helpful to put some limits on how big is, is the influence of an astrocyte yeah. in terms mm -hmm. of space. So Alfonso, you had data today, if I understood it correctly, suggesting that endocannabinoid signaling through astrocytes modulates distances out to synaptic strengths out to about 80 microns. Was that right? I think the, the longest was 120 microns, that the, when I got the, the longest. Right, and that may be a local effect of an astrocytic process right there, or it could be a little bit of diffusion beyond that, but at least we have a sense that an individual astrocyte's influence might not spread beyond a couple hundred microns. I, I'm wondering if there are examples where we could push it further, like in recovery from stroke or, you know, maybe places where astrocytes have to move into big areas. So, so I think, for me, movement, astrocytes have a lot of movement in their fine processes, but they really stake out of territory, and, that, and they stay home. Microglia will move to an injury area. They're actually, they're, they're swimming, you know, um, and it's a bit of a different process there. Phil, you once showed me this one, one video several years back where, where um, uh, you stimulated, you know, a single astrocyte and then watched how far did the signal propagate in, in vivo. Remember, I thought it was like two or three diameters, you know, cell, yeah. cell something like that. So, yeah. so something in that range is where I think we're at, you know. Yeah, so that's a nice external limit, I mean, maximum. But then the minimum, <laughs> one synapse. And every, you know, step from one synapse to that volume, which it gives... And it's not an all-or-none phenomenon, which I think is what gives this incredible level of potential computational complexity in that, you know, the degrees of freedom within there are huge. And whether it affects one synapse, it affects a neighbor, a group of neighbors, coordinates synapses, mm -hmm. uh, 
So how do we incorporate these into network models? I think you're doing some work on that, Alfonso. Uh, I have done some, uh, yes, and collaborated. Well, we have to incorporate that. We have to, all of these, I mean, we, it depends on where you want with the, with the models, but if you want to, the same way that in the model you have to incorporate inhibitory neurons to, to, to really model a network, uh, we need to start to incorporate these other cells that are acting there kind of in parallel to the neurons, and they can control that. Uh, there have been some, some studies now trying to, to produce that uh, kind of modeling the network uh, on, on, and we need to do that. It's, 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 we are not making things simpler, we are making things complicated by bringing up astrocytes into the picture. But if we want to understand the brain, we need to take care of all the variables that are in the brain. We, otherwise, we're not going to so understand what's going on. David Bredish was here last year and did one of these with us um, on a completely different He's a different good colleague team. in the University of but Minnesota. One of the repeating things that came out of listening to him was that theory has to drive a lot of this work that's sort of unlimited in terms of its complexity. Is there any real but, theory? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't even know what theory entails in this field. I'm talking too much. Okay, that, 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 that's the last part I'm going to say. Okay. I, I, agree, I agree with David on, on that, is that. But he is thinking in neurons, and we are in the theory and in the evidence and the experimental evidence, we are far behind yeah. all the work with neurons. Give us some break, because sometimes I feel like when they, people outside the field of the, of the, of the astrocytes, they are asking questions that... Uh, people working with neurons, they haven't even replied yeah. so after 100 years of that. We are starting apply. now, and so they can ask questions like, what is the code used by the astrocytes? And say, okay, we don't know the code by neurons after 100 years of working. Yeah. And here, so I think sometimes it's very unfair for the, for mm -hmm. the, the glia field, and I agree with David that this is the theory, but we are, we still have to catch up all the, the, the our, you, that's our my feeling. Understanding is so primitive. We have so few pieces, and we try to make hypotheses, and we make these little steps. And this is why I think we really do need to do a whole genome-wide uh, perturbation targeted to the astrocyte, see what the ultimate output changes are, so we can start selecting based on behavioral changes which gene products we want to investigate. And that means that we don't are not limited by our thinking based on a small amount of data. We will certainly get a large amount of data. Then we'll be able to make, we'll really be able to think and, and start making models about how the different cell types of the brain interact to actually lead to the emergent behavior that we all experience every day. If I could get pushed a little bit further, that's going to be enough, and just get a clarification from you, Alfonso. For some of the data that you presented today, you had the D2 astrocyte modulating data set in the, in the D1. Were those different astrocytes? Or is, is it like neurons? Were they, are, were they essentially the same astrocyte as different, you know, modulating both? You know, is that possible? Do you, do you, can you distinguish whether the same astrocyte can handle both? Uh, no. And our data, the way it is right now, and we're going to pursue on that. But right now, no, I cannot distinguish. But something has to be different there. I mean, 
they are responding and yeah. talking, so something is different. We don't know exactly what is that. We have so poor characterization so far of the of the cells and the molecules. I think I was talking with you, Eric, about there are basic questions about the astrocytes that we don't know. I mean, it's like uh, we have no idea. Uh, and the heterogeneity is one of them, and how that happens, and different uh, genus uh, expression profile. Uh, I mean, we are very ignorant, very ignorant about, about astrocytes. I was curious, it sounds like everybody here falls into one camp, and there was a recent uh, dual perspective in Journal of Neuroscience um, using the term gliotransmission, which I don't think anybody has explicitly used, but you have all said that astrocytes release chemicals and talk to neurons. And I was just wondering if you guys might be able to speak to that. Uh, it sounds like a controversy, or maybe it's not a controversy, uh, about gliotransmission. What is it? What is the concerns that some have in the field? And what is sort of the general consensus? <clears throat> gliotransmission absolutely exists. There are so many laboratories that are totally independent of one another, are not trained by one another, who have demonstrated this. There are some evidence from a minority, an incredibly small minority, that have questioned some of the results. And the experiments those laboratories have done are good experiments, and if you make the conclusions within the limits of the data, their conclusions are fine. However, when you start to make sweeping comments, it gets a little more difficult. So this is one of the problems, I think, as, as you see new things, people will challenge, that's science, that's good. And let's keep challenging one another to actually raise the bar and improve the quality of the information we have. But gliotransmission absolutely exists. But what we don't understand is how is it recruited? When is it recruited? And I think that's part of the argument people have been having. They've been saying, oh, is it really physiological because you're not showing here's the necessary stimulus? Uh, so it does occur. And I think what we need is just more people. So I'm excited today with Carlos. I mean, Carlos has come to this field not knowing, a, excuse me, <laughs> not knowing much about the field. And he's done it. He did a great experiment. And he said, oh my goodness, these astrocytes are doing some really intriguing stuff. And the experiments he's done, I would never have thought of doing. And it enriches the field. And I think we need more people who join in because they have a good experiment to do, they test it, and they let the data drive the path they go along. Uh, so yes, without question, gliotransmission exists. I wasn't yeah. even going to bring it up because I thought it was decided. Yeah. <laughs> it was decided in this room, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, the, of those two articles, the second article written by Andre Vittora, I think was extremely thoughtful. I thought he really did a wonderful job of saying things like, Again, like we've been saying today, astrocytes are not neurons. If you look at a synapse, it's going to fire, that neuron will fire at 100 hertz. It has to have a store of vesicles ready for the next action potential. An astrocyte's slower. It doesn't need such a store of transmitter. For example, if you can have one vesicle that has a kiss-and-run fusion with the membrane and can refill with transmitter, why do you need a second? 
So it's, when you look in the EM, it's much harder to see the large number of vesicles that are present within the astrocyte, potentially for this reason. They're not necessary. Astrocytes don't code like neurons do. Who is to say that actually other forms, we, there are other forms of release of trans, and control yeah. of transmission? Transporters. Sure. They control the extracellular level. There's channels that can mediate release. And these other forms of transmission probably occur in neurons too. But in neurons, everyone focuses to the synapse because you have the beautiful ultrastructure. And, you know, there's atypical forms of transmission from dendrites, which are gradually uh, becoming aware. Uh, so I think everyone, whether they're a neuroscientist, a brain scientist, or a glia scientist, should just keep an open mind and look at the quality of the data. Hi, listeners. Salma interjecting here just to let you know that at this point in the discussion, we signed off, and I thanked everyone, and then as mics were being pulled off, the group just launched into a fantastic discussion that they then were gracious enough to give me permission to post for you guys. So as you listen to this, and it is great and worth listening to, just keep in mind that as these guys were speaking these words, they didn't believe they were on mic. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Not everything is going to be... So as I said, I'm not going to do everything, no. okay? But... We may rethink about what we think of, of, of I mean, the, the, the wonderful effects of uh, acetylcholine that you have also with the nicotinic receptors. I mean, we have to rethink the physiology and the pathology as well. Mm -hmm. And especially, I think, we are going to be surprised about the pathology. Yeah. We have been thinking on neurons, how to treat patients for uh, regarding neurons, and we haven't, we haven't achieved anything. Can you compare about neuroscience? Yeah, How much we have done? Nothing. So they, Prozac. They mentioned about the... Yeah, what do you think about mental health? Yeah. Did any of the astrocyte genes what? pop out, or any <clears throat> the the Nature paper that came out like yesterday, did anybody pop through over there? It hit the, whatever, lay media circuit, but they were saying that all of these genes were mapping on from like five neurological disorders, I think it's like schizophrenia, autism, stuff like that, and they were just looking at the commonality of the transcriptional profile, and Anyways, it'd be interesting to see if there mm. were some astrocytes. Was this yesterday? It was like just, it, this last issue of Neuron or Nature. Sorry. Yeah, I haven't read this week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah no. Be, but for example, fragile X. Is mm -hmm. it FMR one P? Yeah. So if you do a conditional astrocyte specific deletion, mm -hmm. you get autistic like behavior in mice. Doesn't have to be. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Is that, um, um, and one of the effects uh, that leads to changes yeah, in GLT-1. Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. How you leave? So yeah. And or you can do, uh, you know, brain-wide knockout, and just do astrocytic re rescue. Hmm. Yeah. I also think it was like what you were saying about we're going to learn all these things about from astrocytes and neurons, and in some ways that probably will be the next circle is where everybody's going to figure out all these things that happen in astrocytes, and then it'll be like, oh wait. Neurons have been doing this, but we haven't been studying that. So it'll all go full circle. Yeah. So how long do you think it would, what would it, you know, let's say a CRISPR strategy for all, all genes targeted to astrocytes. How big, I mean, that's a lot to do, I know, but. Yeah, the CRISPR libraries are, I mean, you could do CRISPR-I, knock down, mm -hmm. and then I think you would be in better shape because you would end up with a whole bunch of lethals. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I, I don't think it would take very long. My, my concern is that a lot of these genes are probably redundant. I'm struck by how big a phenotype you get with GLT-1 yeah. knockouts. Yeah. I would have guessed that GLAST would, would have protected against... So yeah, I looked up. So maybe maybe I'm all wrong. Is yeah. it, you, no, maybe so we'll I, go fast we, like, I tried finding the distribution of glass versus GLT one, and it seems to be really lowly expressed, as far as immuno we can tell from a, what I could find in the literature, is not so much expressed in know. the ventral midbrain. But Martin Parker says there are those. They're, they're there, they're there, but the GLT one is really the predominant per, uh, version of transport, at least in the VTA. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it may be that GLT-1 is one of these things that marks heterogeneity. This, yeah. this circuit depends upon uh, transport by, by this transporter here. Um, I mean, I think about, in your case, the lactate shuttle being a marker for metabolically demanding circuits. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. the mm -hmm. default state network in the brain. Oh, by the way, the expression of the MCTs and some of the other enzymes does actually change at night and day. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Why do you call it metabolically demanding? Lactate's just kind of wimpy in one sense because, it, 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 you know what I mean? It doesn't, it, it's so inefficient as far as the astrocyte, as far as the production. I mean, and I never quite understood why, I guess I'm not enough metabolic person for the neurons, why they prefer lactate. I mean, they, their mitochondria, apparently, it's more efficient. I haven't counted how many ATPs they get out of it, you know, but, but I, I always thought that was a bit of a waste, you know, that... that yeah. It's not a very efficient way to actually raise energy, you know. Um, for the astrocyte. For the astrocyte, yes. Right, okay. Right. For, for the neuron, a little bit more. You know? Yeah. But, you know, the energy expenditure that's been calculated at synapses compared to an astrocyte is dramatically higher. Yeah. So maybe they can afford that inefficiency by just yeah. getting, is it two molecules of ATP in the astrocyte and 34 in the neuron or something Until like they get into a crisis. No. Until they get into a crisis. Yes. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So wouldn't it be a great multi-institute center proposal to actually do this? Mm -hmm. And combining knockdown with... Um, uh, Characterization. Yeah. So, so if we had a list of all of the receptors on astrocytes, yeah, which we do, um, you f you feel that's complete well, as as a function of heterogeneity. Uh, so, so I would I would yeah, do the yeah. 10x single cell. What what do do astrocytes fall into different classes, mm -hmm. where some of them only have GLT one and others have glast, yeah. and some of them have uh, glutamate receptor or uh, you name your receptor. I, I don't know the answers to yeah. this. So there's a great potential uh, behavioral screen that, uh, so there's a company called Sepracore. They, um, they developed Lunesta, the sleeping pill. They became acquired and did some, or some other name now. And they did this amazing phenotypic screen for developing new drug candidates. And they did it with psychogenics. And they did it in what they call is a cube. Now, they used 100,000 mice uh, to screen. I guess my N of 8 is lacking. <laughs> no, 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 no. To screen 1,000 molecules. Yeah. So they had an N of 100 for each molecule. Yeah. And they did it's some, something called the cube. And what they did was they said, well, we have no idea really. It, we're looking at psychiatric indications. There's no behavior that's depression, schizophrenia, whatever. So what they did is they had video cameras and they had a computer 
and they just track behavior in three dimensions. And they didn't actually know what they were tracking. They then put known drugs that work in patients into wild-type animals, and they looked how the behaviors were changed. And they had this three-dimensional space of certain drugs and what they did. And then the, the CEO of the company said, said to the medicinal chemist, okay, I'm going to divide your, goal, your objectives into two paths, a 400 molecule and a 600 molecule path. The 400 molecules, you have to design around known drugs that act in patients and that they should have the right properties to get in the brain, but there's no other a priori knowledge needed. The last 600 molecules just make molecules that you think might be good. You know, get in the brain and just think would be interesting. And then they took those thousand molecules and they shot them into animals in the cube with this three-dimensional analysis of behavior and then tried to map it onto known changes in wild-type behavior by other brain-acting drugs. And they ended up with so many hits. And they then looked for common classes of compound that all had hits. And they now have four molecules in clinical trials uh, for psychiatric indications. And they did this based on absolutely no knowledge. So just coming back to what is it, you, know, you think about, well, how would we screen if we do these knockdowns? You know, would we do EEG? Would we, it's all going to be too slow. You need some other, unless there's a, you know, if there's a, a NIDA is an element, clearly you have to do something related to, you know, drug seek and whatever. But it's, that was a long-winded way of saying there's ways to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I always hesitate on that message when I think the listeners might be um, future physicians. Because <laughs> I go to the doctor now and the doctor says, I need to get some more, a more, more battery of tests. There's no hypothesis, right? Mm -hmm. There's just, I'm going to get some more data and see what we find. And I agree we're at the beginning. We've, we've gone to Antarctica. We're going to discover new species. And there's going to be all kinds of interesting, exciting stuff when we, when we characterize and scream. But I do think there is something to this idea of... Um, we can define important parameters for where astrocytes are going to play a role, and that might inform the screen. So, like, how many frames a second do I need in the cube? Sure. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you have to have a thoughtful, set it up in a thoughtful manner to increase the probability of success. Yeah. Without and, question. And I think the reason Carlos was successful was he probed a specific circuit. And he didn't do the psychiatric approach, which is I'm going to bathe your brain in a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And hope like hell. And hope like hell you feel better. Right? I think there might be a way. I'd be willing to do the screen if we said we've chosen these three circuits because we already know astrocytes are important mm -hmm. there. And we're going to inject the drugs there. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to do, we're not going to be like countermanding but, the cool phenotype you might get here with. A, a terrible so side effect over here. In this cube, they effectively did that because they benchmarked it based on drugs that are known in patients to have certain behavioral outcomes. That allowed them to benchmark to certain three-dimensional, I'm using their words, three-dimensional space in whatever they were looking at. Right, right. And then it was required that the unknown drug at least take the behavior close to that. So I think, and that would remove some of that. But some ways, I mean, I almost feel like that's sort of a biased screen because if you think yeah. about how, you know, 
most drugs, like an SSRI works, you have to be bathed with it for two weeks or four weeks. And so whatever yeah. acute effect you're seeing is, in some ways, may just be an artifact. And there might be actually better ones. They, mm-hmm. There might be better targets that they're looking because they're sort of confined by still using the yeah. established rules they have. Again, if you have umpteen million dollars and all these fancy cubes and mm-hmm. yeah. a million. Blind instrument. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Hundred thousand cubes. <laughs> Could an R01 even buy a hundred thousand animals? Couldn't house them even if it could yeah. buy yeah. Yeah. You know, you know house them. You know what would happen? What this grant would get a score of a one, and then people would look at the budget and say, no, <laughs> you can only have 20,000 for animals yeah. per year. <laughs> Aim 1A. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Do you mind if I use some of that for outtakes? No, I think it's great. Yeah. 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 I don't think we used the F-bomb, did we? <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's a very one. Well.